You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. And on this episode, I want to talk briefly about the cultural moment that's happening both broadly in the United States, but then also within the Southern Baptist Convention about the issue of how we treat women. And what is kind of uh, providential is that I guess four or five months ago when I was planning kind of this calendar years of, of podcasts, uh, I had planned to talk about this subject in June, completely at the time unaware of what would be happening in the culture and specifically happening in the Southern Baptist Convention when I, I planned to do this podcast. So it's providential that we're going to be chatting with two of my good friends um, about the issue of uh, women's dignity, how we treat women, uh, complementarianism, and then kind of just talking more broadly about the culture as well. And to have that conversation, um, I have two good friends here with me. One is Palmer Williams, who uh, is a church friend of mine, whose husband is a very, very close friend of mine and is a lawyer um, and is just razor sharp on issues facing the culture. And I wanted to sit down and chat with her. And then also uh, my friend Catherine Parks, who is a writer and speaker. Um, and again, just razor sharp when we're thinking about the issues of biblical complementarity and, and biblical womanhood. So I wanted to have a conversation um, with these two women and these two friends to talk about how we as Christians can think through the issue of how we talk about women, how we treat women, um, and how we move forward with a Christ-like witness. So Palmer, Catherine, thanks for being with me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. So my first question is kind of addressing the cultural moment past six months or even longer than that, we've been living in kind of the hashtag Me Too moment and Me Too movement. Um, as Christian women, how do you two interpret the Me Too moment that we're in? Good or bad? Um, how, how are you kind of feeling about how the culture's handling it? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's unfortunate. You know, it's devastating, but it's um, it's been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important that we not see it as a political movement in any way, um, that it's not one side or another, but this is just something that women experience. And uh, it's it's such a part of being a woman to fear abuse and harassment and some of these things that when a lot of this started coming out, I realized I hadn't really had a lot of these conversations with my husband. Mm-hmm. And so when we started having them and he realized how I walk through a parking lot yeah, and, you know, the things that a woman has to be aware of so much of the time, he was really surprised by that. And so I think this movement comes about because of devastating things, but the movement itself is, 
is not devastating. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation and it's uh, an opportunity for women to be heard and for men to listen. And I think it's an opportunity for the church to do the same thing, to um, listen to women within the church who have experienced these things and have mm-hmm. often experienced them within the church. So closely tied to that, and Palmer, I'll ask you this question, is when all of this stuff first began popping up in the culture, my first instinct was, okay, well, this happens so little, and there's so few instances of this. Why is this now being elevated to like the level that it is? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I would have conversations with someone, or my wife would have conversations with someone, and she would learn about, or I would learn about how common it is. Uh, so I just want to get your read on the situation. Like, do you feel as though this is an epidemic, or as a whole, do you think women are treated well? in society? Yeah. So I think um, this is definitely a a symptom of a greater brokenness in our society. Um, As a woman, I think think every time a Me Too um, hashtag is is written and I see here the stories, I'm not— I'm sadly not surprised by them. I think that it's something that happens within the church and without the church because we have this broken view of the dignity of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think for the church itself, it's a gospel issue. It's a, an issue that goes all the way back to the creation story and and how we view women. Was Eve um, created to be the servant to Adam, or was Eve created as a as a um, as an equal and a partner, um, now with different roles. Sure. sure, I'm not. I'm not against that. But how do we, from the beginning of time, see women? And I think, especially in American culture um, today, we have a broken view of women. Um, and in the in the church, I think that that's something that um, it's a sin that we have been struggling with for decades. And I think this is a great purge mm. of that. So it's. As Catherine said, it's devastating to hear the stories and to hear the abuse and um, the oppression that has been that has happened. But I also think that it is a, a moment of repentance, and we have the opportunity now that sin has been brought to light to um, cover it with the blood of Christ and to heal and move forward in redemption. Um, but we have to have the purge in order to um, address and fix the brokenness. That's a good word. Mm-hmm. So we we hear this phrase thrown out a lot, especially in complementarian circles. It's this phrase of just biblical womanhood. In, in some sense, it means a thousand things. In some sense, it means it's, it's thrown around so casually that we're like, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I would love for the two of you to just give us and, and give me a definition of what you think biblical womanhood means. Um, so I think biblical womanhood means that you are living your life to the glory of God and using the gifts that he's given you. Um, and I think for sure there are roles that women are um, are designed to fulfill. But I also think that so often, especially as complementarians, we get so fixed on those roles that we lose sight of the creativity and the Mm. beauty that God has instilled in women. Mm -hmm. And we start to put them in a box. And I I know for me personally, something, um, so I, I love to bake and I love raising my kiddos, but I also 
love diving into political discussions and I'm an attorney and I love being out in the workforce. And that is a huge, a constant struggle for me to balance all those things. And um, I don't believe in the Wonder Woman view that our culture um, is selling to women right now. I don't think we need to be all things to all people. But but when it comes to what does it mean to be a woman, I think it it means to be a beloved daughter of the king and um, that he has created each of us uniquely with giftings and that he expects us um, to use them and he expects um, he need, his church needs us to be all that he's created us to be. And so I, I think that as conservative evangelicals, we sometimes have gotten away from truly um, embracing women for who God's created them mm-hmm. to be because we're so wrapped up in our legalism about roles. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. So I hear you saying like the temptation in complementarianism is to have a very narrow and restrictive view mm-hmm. of womanhood. But when in reality, when you look at the Genesis account, mm-hmm. you would say like actually – no, like there's actually a very, very, very robust vision mm, mm-hmm. for women's dignity in the scripture. Complementarianism enters into these questions about relationships in the church and the home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Catherine, uh, turning to you, like mm-hmm. how, building off Palmer or seeing things differently, how how would you define biblical womanhood? Yeah, I think I mean I would totally agree with Palmer and like God in Genesis. What we don't see is. God created them male and female, and he gave them this command, and this is specifically how men do it, and this is specifically how women do it. Like, it, we don't get that specific mm-hmm. with it, but we do get a partnership. And I think the problem with a lot of conversations about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is that they start with, I'm a man, and you know, or I'm a woman. And what we really need to start with is mm. the Imago Dei, we are created in the image of God, and there's this partnership. And, um, and that partnership manifests itself differently in different ways. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. The, I mean, when we have such a narrow view, we risk alienating so many people. We risk alienating single people, right. you know, who, if if biblical womanhood only looks like this very narrow thing um, that maybe we get from Titus 2, then we're alienating a woman who can't be taught to love her husband because she doesn't have one. Yeah. And um, I think sometimes we take scripture passages that are written specifically for women and we get this idea that's that's all that there is for women. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it's specific to women doesn't mean that the rest of scripture isn't also given to women. And so biblical womanhood can't be just two passages. Mm-hmm. It has to that's encompass the, the great commission and the command to love God with your heart, soul, mm-hmm. mind, and strength. That's and the I'm way that about. I maybe do that as a woman will look different Yeah, um, using the strengths that he has given women and the gifts that he's given us. You know, And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is so many of the women I see have such a heart for justice. And I don't know if that's because we've experienced injustice to a certain degree that's different than men. I don't know if it's just like that is a God-given thing with compassion and um, a heart that nurtures. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the people in culture that I see calling for change in certain ways are women who are really incensed at the injustice that they see. That's biblical womanhood to me, you know, Mm -hmm. calling for justice and seeking ways to care for the orphan and the widow and some of these things. Um, So that is not just like a great definition. (laughs) No, that's... (laughs) But I think it's broader than what we we hear a lot. That's helpful for me because it helps kind of recalibrate where we put the accent 
when we talk about complementarianism, because mm-hmm. speaking as a, a biblical complementarian, like my temptation is to go to the restrictive, like we define it in two passages, mm-hmm. when in reality, like there's a much broader sweep to it. So I think, I thank you for that. That was really, really mm-hmm. encouraging and, mm-hmm. and very well said. So here's a question for the both of you. We're in this cultural moment. It seems uh, it's a helpful moment in the sense that men are kind of like, well, maybe we need to quit talking for a little bit and just listen. And I think it's a that's a very healthy and helpful posture to take. So, what do you want men to know? So, like, I, we could think broadly to the culture or to men in the church, um, but like, what do you think right now is is really important for just men to be aware of as we are going through this refining moment? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not trying to trap you or <laughs> entrap you or <laughs> take your job. Um, I, we're not like women aren't a threat. We are co-laborers, and we want to help you, and we want you to help us, and we want to partner with you to fulfill the Great Commission and um, to do kingdom work. I think when we when we start again, like Genesis one twenty seven, when we start with the similarities that we have, and then you know work together. I've been doing a lot of reading about um, Annie Armstrong, mm-hmm. who was an SBC great woman in the beginning of the 20th century. And just seeing her like unleash her gifts upon the Southern Baptist Convention is amazing to read about. And I've been so inspired that there are so many women with amazing gifts just looking for an opportunity to serve. Um, And so I would say like, we're a resource. Don't, Don't be afraid use us, like look to us and um, and listen. And another thing I want to add, and I think you're making a great point about listening. Um, I was recently with my family, extended family on a vacation, and my dad sat down with the women in my family and just asked us about our experience in the church mm. and asked if we had experienced abuse or misogyny or some of these things. And he didn't make excuses. He wasn't defensive. He didn't try to say, yeah, I understand. Like he just listened and wanted to know. And um, I think it needs to start there. Uh, We had another experience with a friend of all of ours, Patrick, who we were talking about Uber and he just looked at me and said, how do you feel about riding in an Uber? Are you afraid? I don't even like it. So I don't know how a girl would feel. But just like that invitation to um, to be heard mm-hmm. and to express some of the fears or concerns. Um, and I think there's an openness then to, to go deeper in conversation when you feel like you're being valued and heard. I would say I would invite um, all of us as the church, but especially men. I think when you see in the scriptures— over and over again, you see bad fruit, you see bad theology, you mm. see a, a, a misorder of um, of God, God, the good things God has given. And so I think I, what I would challenge is, okay, we have bad fruit in the church right now. That's mm-hmm. clear. It's apparent. It's coming out. More is going to come out. We have clearly have bad fruit in our culture when it comes to women. So we need to go back as a, as a group and go back and say, what are we missing? Because this isn't just about rules for where women you know, where our place is, or it isn't just about sexual abuse or sexual harassment. But there's a deeper, there's always a deeper heart issue, right? Mm-hmm. When you see a, the sin is the symptom. So we need to go back, and I think men specifically, 
need to go back and say, okay, what is underlying this sin that we see that's pervading? Mm-hmm. And how as leaders, pastors, um, lay people, how can we write our our theology and our view of women and and move forward out of that place? Because I, I think we can't just put a band-aid on it. We can't just start um, allowing women to um, to speak more or to be a bigger part mm-hmm. of our conversations, we've got to go and root out that that deep mm-hmm. sin issue that is that um, and whether it's you know an idolization of the American dream from the 1950s or something, right. you know whatever it is, we've got to go figure that out and then move forward from there because we need total healing. We need the gospel to cover mm-hmm. um, these issues. So I think one thing when I that I see happening is um, we have the the Me Too movement within the church and we have the Me Too movement in the mm-hmm. culture. And the culture's reaction to the Me Too movement is angry, and I get it. Mm-hmm. There's hurt, there's brokenness, there's sin, there's a reason to be angry. But that's not enough. It's not going to fix things. It's not going to heal things. We know as believers we have the only thing that's going to cover this is the blood of Jesus, and we have to go back to the gospel. And so we have the answer. We have mm-hmm. the prescription um, for total healing. And so we have to start in our churches um, and start using the gospel as um, as the mechanism for redemption in this area. And then we can be the answer to the society. We can't have that same posture that the society that we see the culture taking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if I can piggyback on that. Sure. I think that's so important because there's a tendency to see it happening, you know, maybe in um, in a church or an organization that is different from us. You know, it's a different camp, and so it's easy to jump on board and be like, "Yes, that needs to be rooted out, and um, we need to take care of that." But if it doesn't go deeper to really looking at scripture and really looking at mm-hmm. our doctrine, then we're not going to recognize it. Um, or we're going to deny it when it's happening in our midst. And we're going to deny or not see more subtler forms of it. And so I think there's this, there's a use of women for our purposes that leads to abuse. Mm -hmm. There's also a use of women that leads to us looking good. And my fear, or I shouldn't say fear, but my concern right now is that it's in vogue to start raising up women's voices and to start listening. Sure, sure. But that's also a use of women for our own purposes if we're not careful. And if we're not inviting women in and giving, you know, listening to them, raising up their voices because we respect them and want to hear what they have to say and believe that God is speaking through them, then we'll we'll have the tendency to say, oh, we need a woman up here. Who can we pick? Instead of really seeing the value of our Mm -hmm. sisters. Um, And so I think, like Palmer said, it has to go really deep yeah. in order to root out how are we using people for our own purposes. That's that's mm. very, very wise. One of the things that I feel like came out of uh, last week's Southern Baptist Convention, there was a great Baptist 21 panel. Dr. Moeller was on there, mm. and he said something to the effect of one of his hopes in this moment is that we have a more gentler, kinder, more discerning complementarianism. Mm. What he also said was, he said, listen, we need to own the fact that our theology, what we believe is good theology, can be abused and picked up by those who would who would be looking for a reason mm. and justification to treat women how they dispositionally just want to treat women. Mm. And he's like, what we need to do is call that a heresy mm-hmm. for people who do that and to really evaluate mm-hmm. uh, what what true complementarianism is. And I think you're right. It's not simply tokenism. 
that we need a woman to fill this mm-hmm. slot. Mm-hmm. It's to say, no, like we're not looking to fill quotas. We're looking to see like, where is wisdom? And wisdom is not you know, gender exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a good available to it's all of us. Also personified as a woman in Proverbs. So very well that. said. <laughs> very well said. Uh, so, want to talk about kind of observations about conservative evangelical treatment of women, and what are some ways that well-intentioned, well-meaning evangelical men can kind of engage in the type of like patronizing, humiliating type actions that we don't intend to, but we, it ends up becoming. And I was I was mindful of one time Dr. Moore, we were on a panel together and he said, you know, sometimes pastors really, really talk up their women. Like I, I really married up. Mm. And he's like, but that really, it, he's meaning it to be one thing, but it comes across as you're patting your little wife on the head. <laughs> and I was like, actually, that's a really, really good point mm-hmm. that good intentions can still produce kind of like a culture of second class. Mm-hmm. So observations you have about evangelical subculture around how we treat women, good or bad, what are some ways we might be doing it right, actually? I mean, there this might be an opportunity to say like, there's actually some good stuff happening, mm-hmm. but then there's also some mm-hmm. junk that's happening as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I have an interesting perspective. So I came from a very secular university, secular law school, secular work environment um, until the last couple of years. And so to me, although sure there's lots of misogyny that happens in secular culture, I was very used to being treated as an equal in the academic space and in my work space. Um, I never really personally had experienced much you know, abuse or because I was a woman. But then when I stepped into working more in the Christian space, there was this radical difference of how I was treated because I was a woman. But it was, I think it was well-intentioned. I think we have um, things like the Billy Graham rule for a good reason. We're trying to protect our marriages. We're trying to protect um, our hearts. But I think when we use, sometimes men um, in our cultures are so scared of those sort of issues that instead of dealing with their own heart sin issues, they put it off on women. I'm not going to, you know, talk to this woman or look her in the eye or anything like this because that would be dishonoring to my wife. Sort of realize I'm dishonoring a fellow um, image bearer. So I think we need to be careful of, of how we, how we protect ourselves and, and um, while at the same time uh, seeing the dignity in our, our fellow sister in Christ. Um, I don't necessarily have the prescription for that, but I do know it's something that we that I've experienced that we need to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jen Wilkins spoke maybe last year. Um, I just recently watched the video at an Acts 29 conference. And one of the really practical things that she talked about is the importance of having like a woman on staff paid mm-hmm. in your churches. And I've just thought about that a lot and how um, how honoring it is to... The work of women, there are in so many churches, women who are working, sacrificing, putting in so many volunteer hours in ways that, to be honest, most men would not do, you know. Um, And they're doing it not for recognition, not for anything like that. But I think it's just a really good practical way of showing the women in your church that you value them, you value their gifts, Mm -hmm. and giving them someone who they can come to. Um, And so I think a lot of it starts at the local church level, um, just implementing ways that women are being raised up, that women's discipleship is 
valuable to you. And one of the things that we've seen happen because this hasn't happened uh, is that a lot of women's discipleship is being done by parachurch organizations instead of in the local church. And a lot of pastors don't know who's discipling the women in their church mm. because it's authors or bloggers or speakers. Right. Um, and in order to really instill the values of your church and to get your people involved and on board, you need to value the women and their theological training. Um, and one of the things that I lament is even, you know, 13, 14 years ago when I graduated from college, I didn't know any women. And I went to a Christian college. I didn't know a single person who was going on to seminary who was a woman. Hmm. And um, I wish that I had even really thought that that was an option. And so I think just like the theological training of women needs to be hmm. important to us too. Um, and I think that's increasing. Another thing that's practical is sermon illustrations. I think that's a really great way to give a perspective. Um, talk about women. Talk about women of faith. Talk about, you know, know them first. You have to know them to talk about them. But I was thinking about so many of the kind of theological heroes of men are men with platforms, men who spoke to thousands or, you know, men whose works are read now. That hasn't been available to women. And so, so many of our heroes are women who served quietly for years and years and um, didn't get recognition in so many ways. And I think there's a lot to be learned from those women. And so instilling that, like teaching both the men and the women in your church about these lives of quiet service and the way that the Lord has worked through not just the fathers of the faith, but also these mm -hmm. women who were faithful going before. And I think if you look throughout the scriptures, I mean, the scriptures are rich with this, these incredible women of faith who um, who God didn't didn't relegate to um, to only service in the house or only um, miracles in the kitchen. Like they were doing incredible <laughs> things, and I think um, and and that you know is the root of of um, our doctrine and our faith. And I think we need to to speak more about those those women and teach um, our mm -hmm. girls and our boys about how important um, men and women are in the Bible mm -hmm. and how beloved they are by by God. Um, I think I was reading Romans um, a couple of weeks ago, and if you look at um, Paul's kind of admonition of his brothers and sisters at the end of the letter, it's mainly women he's talking about, mm -hmm. which I think is so mm -hmm. neat. I think a lot of times Paul gets a bad rap for um, <laughs> his, how he um, speaks of women, but he just pours praise and um, thankfulness for this whole list of female leaders mm -hmm. um, in in the church. And so I think we need to not be so scared of our of our boxes and um, and and teach the value of um, of our. Forefathers and foremothers, I guess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Nice. Can I jump in one more sure. thing? Um, I think we need to have a broad conversation within complementarianism about what it actually means. Yes. And that mm. so I think you're exactly right. Because for example, I'm I'm pretty tied in with the Council on Biblical Man and Womanhood. Denny Burke is one of my closest friends. And what I so respect about Denny is he is explicit is that he wants complementarianism defined solely by the Danvers statement and not by cultural conversations about whether a woman can be president or run for Senate 
or whether women should be in combat. Now, we we can have that discussion on a prudential level that ought to be informed by the Scripture, mm-hmm. but I, I think specifying what we mean by this is what complementarianism is and this is what it is not is really, really helpful in kind of eliminating, honestly, legalisms that mm-hmm. get built into mm-hmm. the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think you're right. I think um, there are a lot of people in complementarian churches who've never read the Danvers Statement. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who are implementing things that you can't really find in Scripture, and you might not even really see in the Danvers Statement. And That's a so, good word. Um, kind of bringing that into a new generation. And I just think it, it, if you look at the way that this is fleshed out in some parts of conservative evangelical culture, you would think like there are three things that women can do and that's it. You know, it's very, very limited. And so I think, I think there's been talk about that recently, just like really fleshing out what is complementarianism? What does it apply to? What doesn't it? And defining those things and then unleashing women to, to do the things that we are very clearly shown in scripture that we should be doing as Believers. Palmer, I want to come back to something you said, and uh, you mentioned biblical complementarity sometimes uh, gets stereotyped as trying to like bring back the 1950s uh, Mm -hmm. leave it to beaver type culture where, you know, the woman is at home baking in her pearls and the husband comes in and immediately sits down and just goes to the TV. I I want to discuss kind of uh, how maybe the church is susceptible to allowing outside unhealthy gender norms dictate what become our gender norms. And then sometimes how we even like put a Bible verse behind it Mm -hmm. and say that is biblical womanhood. Mm -hmm. So that if you, for example, are working outside the home, uh, you are less than. I think, um, yeah, my husband and I talk a lot about this because we um, own a law firm together. We work together. Um, we parent together. Um, we kind of just do life together. And so this has been something we've thought a lot about um, and something as as a mom and um, a woman I've, I've struggled with. But I think um, we have allowed this weird 1950s culture, which love— Love dresses and pearls. Um, <laughs> but the weird part of that, we've allowed to infiltrate um, our churches and um, redefine what a marriage and what a family look like um, in a really stifling way. I think it um, it hurts our kids. It hurts our marriages. It hurts um, the body of Christ because we um, pigeonhole um, each man and woman into specific roles that they play. But I know personally, um, in in our family, we've kind of stripped down um, and taken those cultural norms out of our family. Um, We still um, believe in in the scriptural complementarianism when it comes to the spiritual nature of our household. But um, we both um, put the kids to bed. Mm -hmm. We um, switch off days for work. We um, try to bring our kids along as much as we can because we want to teach them what our life looks like. And, and we think that's a, a healthy way of parenting, or at least what works well for our family. And so we've tried to, to, um, buck that system as much as, much as we can. But I think, um, 
I do think, especially in today's culture, when a lot of those stereotypes outside the church are starting to get broken down in some good and mm-hmm. some unhealthy ways, sure. But when you have a whole new generation of millennials who are fleeing the church, right? We see this rise of the nuns, not the N-U-N, but the N-O-N-E's, <laughs> that the millennials are saying, I don't believe in anything, and I definitely don't believe in that church institution. And you finally get one to come in your door, and you have these perfect, um, meek, quiet women on one side and men talking about the politics and and the culture on the other side mm-hmm. they they are i think we're strange and we are because that's not normal that's not how god designed our body to to work and i think um one place you don't see this i or at least from my perspective you don't see this problem in the global church I kind of think it's actually an American mm. problem. I was a, a missionary overseas for a couple of years and um, have several friends that are still abroad. And you just, when you're when you're persecuted, when you're meeting in a house church, when when you're the minority, you just don't care anymore about these um, the stereotypes. Um, you care about the doctrine, sure, but you sure. don't care about the. Um, you know, who's making the meal for small group and who might be praying or or any of that. You you're just worried about the gospel and it affecting um, hearts and minds and and telling people about Christ. And so I think that in our comfort and in our consumerism as Americans and in this weird American dream mm-hmm. thing that we um, have now made our be the, the ideal church, right? Um, you get married, you have kids, you have the picket fence, and that's what it means to be a good Christian. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Um, in fact, quite the opposite, actually. But I think we um, we as Americans need to address this sin problem. But I think actually we could take a note from our global mm-hmm. brothers and sisters because I think they're doing it pretty well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, and this was never communicated to me by my parents, but looking at the church around me, I grew up thinking girls grow up to become moms, to have sons, to change the world, and daughters to grow up and have sons to change the world. And it was just like this Mm. subconscious cycle in my mind Mm. that women existed. And motherhood is such a joy to me. Yeah. But I believe that both of my kids are, I have a boy and a girl, and they're both uniquely gifted to carry out kingdom work and um, to spread the gospel. And I don't want to demean like the work that I have. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And I love doing that. I do other things too. Um, But I think, you know, hospitality, so many of these things, like those are the things that the Mm -hmm. global church is also doing and can teach us a lesson in. But I think I agree with everything Palmer said. I think now we have a shift and there's a temptation to go the other way and to take a cue from culture. And a lot of that has to do with power dynamics. And so I think if the evangelical church does not get on top of this, there will be an exodus of women mm-hmm. who have believed that power is what is important. Mm. And I think we've seen that in the church, you know, forever is this power struggle. And I think so much of um, our our focus and what we're seeing in Christian culture right now is, you know, who has power and how do we get the power and how do we keep the right. power and how do we keep the power in culture and all of these things. And when we do that, uh, we start looking at people as, you know, how can we control this or that situation? Um, and so I think we see that in the broader culture that women want to be in power. Yeah. And women want to be empowered. And 
what we need to teach women is that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that you need. It's mm-hmm. not the power of being on a platform mm-hmm. or having authority over men. Like that is not what God is calling us to. That's also not the power that God is giving men. You know, it's not to have this this strong macho power dynamic thing. And so I think like Palmer's saying, we take a lesson from, from the global church because when our emphasis is on making disciples, that's when the the cultural stereotypes don't matter anymore because the culture isn't doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't take a lesson from them. So we have to look at scripture and get creative about ways to do that in our context, um, working together. So um, we've hit on this in a roundabout way, but I guess what opportunities do you think the present moment afford us? And I guess, what do you hope are the conversations that we begin to have as complementarians? And again, I know we've addressed this, but kind of summing it all up, mm-hmm. what are the opportunities that we have? And then where do we, where do you hope we go? I think um, we are at, we're on our knees, right, as a church, mm-hmm. which is, I think, our greatest mm-hmm. place of strength we can be. Um, we have been been humbled, and that's what we needed. Um, and I think that only from that place of humility can we move forward and truly be the body of Christ. Because if we don't encourage our women to be the, the daughters that God has gifted them to be, our church is half we're broken. We're not whole. We can't fully um, live out and be the hands and feet of Christ. And so I think in this moment of humility, we have um, the opportunity to to repent and turn and to fully grow into the church um, of, of men and women that God is, has designed us to be. Yeah, I don't think I can say it a lot better than that at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, repentance, I think, is absolutely the key. and um, mm-hmm. And I think that it has to be big on a large scale, and it also has to be small, individual churches, individual, you know, small groups and, and Sunday school classes and people having these conversations. And um, the truth is that there are people all over our churches who are unaware that this conversation is even happening sure. in the church, sure. but they're still feeling the effects of it without even knowing, you know, and they have seen the effects of it. And so— um, I think in some ways that's even harder for a man as a leader to say, so this is what's happening and I need to repent. Um, but I I mean, you're never going to regret that kind of humility that yeah. draws brothers and sisters together and points us to Christ and that takes us all to the cross together where we experience so much joy of forgiveness. Um, and I think that there is joy waiting for us, but we have to get through this hard work of repentance first. I think what you just said, both humility and I think empathy as well, Mm. really, really go a long way in this conversation. Palmer, Catherine, uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to discuss this issue. Hope it's been encouraging to the both of you Mm -hmm. and hope it's been encouraging Mm -hmm. to listeners. Just to close, like what books, maybe what voices out there do you think are really doing this well and having this conversation well? I think Beth Moore is at the forefront of this for sure. Just following her on Twitter brings me great joy. <laughs> um, but really, I think she and her ministry um, are really at the forefront of speaking about this well. Um, I know this great girl who's coming out with a book on repentance. Um, <laughs> Who could that be? You know, what's Catherine its, Park. What's its title? I think it's Gotta called go. The Real. 
Uh, real. It's real. real. Just real. Yes. When's yes. it come out? In October. In October. So if you want to talk about repentance, I know um, a really great author who you should read. <laughs> but yeah, I would. I Beth Moore has definitely been one of those leaders. Dr. Moore, um, the Moore clan. <laughs> are all, right. um, and I think I think we we need females to step out, but we also need male leaders to say, "Hey, something's going terribly wrong." Um, mm-hmm. So I've been encouraged by both of both the Moors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just think um, women who are faithfully teaching theology yeah. and mm-hmm. um, empowering and um, discipling women, and and we see that on a large scale. We see you know women like Jen Wilkin who are just really trying to mm-hmm. um, give women the tools to study scripture. But we also I think there are women who are doing this in churches all over our country on a small scale, and they don't have platforms, and no one's ever going to hear about them. Think of my wife, who just like, (laughs) you know, crushes it. I mean, your wife is absolutely one of my heroes (laughs) because, and and Andrew's wife does children's ministry at our church, and I think the impact she's had on my own children and my daughter especially, and that she loves these kids and she loves Jesus and she cries talking about Jesus and what an impact that is. Um, And so it's happening. It's happening on a small scale all over the place. And and that's so encouraging to me. Like women being in the word is so encouraging. And to celebrate Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Palmer, Catherine, thank you again. Appreciate you being here. Thanks. Mm -hmm.